Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're speaking with novelist Emily St. John Mandel and learning about her writing career, which has been going from strength to strength. Emily has written five novels, the latest of which is called The Glass Hotel. Her fourth novel, Station Eleven, a piece of dystopian fiction, was a worldwide bestseller. The Glass Hotel is set in multiple locations, including New York and Vancouver Island, and the plot is stretched across several decades. The plot follows the fallout from a financial scandal, rather similar to the Bernie Madoff scandal of 2008, as it affects numerous people thousands of miles apart. Emily joined us from her home in New York City, and here is our conversation, which we recorded a couple of weeks ago. You're a Denman Island girl. Now, for the benefit of our listeners, Denman Island is a small island off the coast of Vancouver Island. And between uh, Vancouver Island and uh, the mainland of Canada. Now, how did you end up in New York City? Uh, It was a bit of an indirect route. I left Denman Island when I was 18 years old. I I was a very serious dancer when I was younger. So... I studied ballet pretty intensely when I was a child and adolescent. And then when I was 18, I auditioned successfully for the School of Toronto Dance Theatre, which is a um, conservatory program in contemporary dance in Toronto. So left Denman Island at 18 to go to school in Toronto. was there for four and a half years or so. Um, and then I had a boyfriend in New York City, which is kind of a cliche, but common tale of how people end up here. So moved down to New York to be with him. We moved up to Montreal together. The relationship didn't last, and I missed New York. So I came back to New York by myself, and that was 17 years ago. It's gone really quickly. And I should add, um, although I was born and raised in Canada, my father is originally from California. So I have dual citizenship with the U.S. through him. Right. So that kind of explains um, some of the locations that you feature in, in your books then. Vancouver <laughs> Island, Toronto, uh, New York City. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to write about places that you don't know very well. You know, if you fudge anything, you'll get a lot of emails from readers pointing out, well, actually, there never was a candy store on Main Street in that town you were writing about. So, you know, I, um, I, I'm most comfortable writing about the places where I've actually lived. Right. Now, we were looking forward to seeing you on Vancouver Island, which is, which is where I'm speaking to you uh, today from. Uh, but I presume your book tour has been cancelled. Is that correct? Yeah. That is absolutely correct. Yeah. Everything's been cancelled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a little yeah. bit heartbroken. My whole family is on Vancouver Island. I so look forward to seeing them. But this is the moment we're in. Now, we know why you feature Toronto and uh, in your books. Now, in Station Eleven and The Glass Hotel, you mentioned shipping firms, and I thought that's an odd industry to uh, have a, as a, one of the themes. Why? What's the, what's the connection with you and shipping firms? Right. Uh, you're not the first person to ask that. It's a little bit odd. Um, I have no personal connection with shipping firms, but I find the shipping industry to be kind of interesting, and I realize that I'm alone in this. You know, I watch interviewers' eyes glaze over when the topic comes up. But um, I think what interests me about shipping is that it is such a vast and absolutely integral part of the economy. And yet it's strangely invisible. The average person, I think it's fair to say, doesn't really consider the fact that every object around them 
And, you know, every article of clothing they're wearing probably came to them over the ocean, let alone considering the lives of the people who brought these things to us. So I, I think it's the combination of vastness in the economy and invisibility that interests me about it. And, you know, I suppose... I suppose I've always been a little bit interested in secret worlds. You know, I was one of those kids who loved uh, the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the idea of the secret world that you access through the back of the wardrobe. I love the secret garden. So I think it's something about the invisibility of that world that draws my attention. Right. Now, uh, the Glass Hotel, you, you focus on a financial sc uh, scandal. Why did you decide to sort of make that as the, the, the main theme of that book? starting point for the book. So something I like to make very clear is that absolutely every character in this book is fictional. But as readers might have guessed from the crime and the timing at the time of the uh, late 2008-2009 economic collapse, the Ponzi scheme in the book is based on Bernie Madoff's crime, which of right. course imploded in New York in, uh, in late 2008. Um, the scale of the crime was fascinating to me. But I think more than that was just how many people had been involved in executing it, you know, let alone the thousands upon thousands of investors. But there was actually a staff whose job was to keep this crime going. And at the time when the story broke, I was an administrative assistant in a cancer research lab at a university in New York. And what I found myself thinking of was the camaraderie that you have among any group of people who you work with every day. And just imagine how much more that sense of camaraderie would be if you were all showing up at work on Monday morning to perpetuate a massive crime. It's kind of just, it's kind of extraordinary to wrap your head around it. So I just found myself thinking about that staff. Who are these people? What kind of story do they have to tell themselves in order to sleep at night you know, to make it somehow okay? So the, uh, the first line of the book that I wrote ended up being the beginning of a chapter in the middle of the book. It's the, uh, the line that's told in the collective, sorry, the chapter that's told in the collective first person from the perspective of the staffers carrying out this crime. It begins, we'd crossed the line, that much was obvious. And I, I was really interested in the idea of collective guilt and mob mentality. This idea that it's probably much easier to cross an ethical and legal line in a, as part of a group of people than it would be individually. So, yeah, that was my starting point. I was drawn into writing about those staff. I, I found myself interested in, you know, the totality of the crime. So I wanted to write about the investors, the uh, perpetrator, the staff involved, um, the, uh, the wife of the perpetrator. But I don't write from an outline. And what that means is that sometimes as I'm writing a book, I can go in some kind of odd and unexpected directions. And um, it ended up being a bit of a ghost story. It's, it's a tricky book to try to describe. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I set out to write a book that was fairly narrowly focused on this crime. And then by the end, I think it's fair to say the crime is really just one element of several. How do you mean a ghost story? Well, I've always loved ghost stories. And I've always sought them out since I was a kid. It's just sort of fascination, I guess. And, you know, it seemed to me as I was writing the book, that when we hear that phrase or use that phrase, ghost story, we tend to think of it in these kind of narrowly classical terms. 
you know, you think of the luminous specter wafting down the hallway in the deserted Victorian mansion, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I like the idea of focusing not just on those kind of quote-unquote classical ghosts, um, which certainly do exist in the book. I'm thinking of the ghosts of Jonathan's investors who he encountered in prison, uh, Jonathan being the perpetrator of the crime. But okay, yeah. If, if you're writing a ghost story, it can also be interesting to think beyond that, to think of different ways of being haunted. I suspect that we're all haunted to some extent by things we shouldn't have said or wish we had said, actions we made or didn't make at critical junctures in our lives. That's a kind of hauntedness. You know, that's something that comes back to you over and over throughout your life as a memory. Um, Another idea, which also occurs in the uh, the prison chapters with Jonathan, is this idea that you know there are inevitably lives that you didn't live. Uh, the idea of the counter life. So that's your counterfactual life, the life where you went to a different school, or married a different person, or emigrated instead of staying, or vice versa. And I love the idea of our lives being haunted by the ghosts of the lives that we didn't live. So, you know, it was, um, it was an interesting exercise to think about what it means to write a ghost story and to write different permutations, I suppose, of hauntedness. Right. And a simple decision of deciding to stay in one hotel as opposed to another hotel and how that changes your life. Exactly. Yeah. Or even in the same hotel to order room service versus going out to the bar. Yeah. Now, the, the Bernie Madoff uh, scandal was a number of years ago. Do you think everyone who, who's reading the book today will understand how a Ponzi scheme works? Uh, no, I don't, but I trust them to look it up. It's run clear on the details. Um, for anybody <laughs> listening who's, who, uh, who's not familiar, which if you're not familiar with Ponzi schemes, congratulations. <laughs> That's something you want to know about. Um, it's a fraudulent investment scheme where... You invest money, but it's never actually invested. It's just put into a bank account. And your supposed returns are actually the investors that later invest, sorry, are actually the investments that later investors are putting in. So the people who invested first get the most money uh, before it all falls apart. Um, yeah, it's kind of an embarrassingly unsophisticated crime in a lot of ways, but a lot of people fell for it in the case of Madoff. Right, okay. Now, uh... Do readers ask about the Vancouver Island locations that you mention in your writing? I'm sorry, what was the question? Do, do readers ask about the Vancouver Island uh, locations that you mention when you're, when you're uh, writing your books? They do, yes. Um, in the Glass Hotel, the Vancouver Island location, it's half fictional and half not. So, Cayette, British Columbia, um, that doesn't exist but it's modeled very closely on Quatsino, which right. is a tiny hamlet. I want to say about 85 people live there, kind of on the far northern end of Vancouver Island. So you drive up to Port Hardy, and then you get on gravel roads to Coal Harbor. And then at Coal Harbor, that's the end of the road. So you can, uh, you can catch a water taxi to Quatsino. And once you get there, you know, it's the most beautiful, idyllic place. It's just stunning. It is so remote. Any children, if there are any living there at the moment, um, they would be going to school via the motor boat that you know takes outgoing mail back to our Port Hardy. So, yeah, it's um, it's extremely remote. I never lived up there, but I did spend a couple of weeks there as a teenager, and it made an impression on me. 
so the place is real. I regret to report that the hotel is not. That's, I think, kind of my vision of an ideal hotel. The hotel that I wish I could be staying in through, you know, all my visits to Best Westerns and Marriott's and such over the last few years. <laughs> right. Yes, of course. Uh, okay. With your your um, your writing style, you, you seem to like having multiple narratives that. Uh, set across different times or even decades apart. Um, what, what books or authors inspired you to r write in this style, if that is the case? It is the case, yeah. Um, a couple that I would point to particularly, um, perhaps the most influential to me in that regard is an American author who I think is not nearly as well known as he should be. His work is wonderful. His name is Dan Sean. And Sean is spelled like chaos, but with an N instead of an S. And he wrote this wonderful novel that came out in 2011 called Await Your Reply. And it moved through time and between characters in what seemed to me to be a very original and interesting way. So, you know, that was absolutely influential. Another big one for me is David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas. It has that right. incredible structure, you know, that goes forward and then back in time. Yeah. Um, I, I would also, uh, Jennifer Egan, another American, her novel, A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I think might also have been 2011, had such an incredibly fragmented structure that I heard it was marketed in some countries as a short story collection, and it honestly worked by their way. So I, I do find myself drawn to that way of telling stories. I think it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting way to construct a book. Thank you, Emily. Uh, that's all we have time for this week. Many thanks to Emily St. John Mandel, whose latest novel, The Glass Hotel, was released last month. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you again soon.